Hello, and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is Olympic gold medalist, author, and former NBA player and United States Senator from New Jersey, Bill Bradley. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to this week's sponsors, Real Paper, HelloFresh, and Chili Sleep in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. James, the noose is tightening on Donald Trump. His longtime accounting firm told investigators his financial statements could not be relied upon. Uh, to be accurate, they're withdrawing uh, their representation. Republican lawyer George Conway said their message to Trump is the statements are false because you lied. This also may hurt him with some of the banks where he has loans. Now, it was the... It was the uh, state attorney general that filed the documents, but the real significance lies with the Manhattan DA's investigation of his business practice, practices. This isn't going to help him, uh, and he and his lapdogs like Jim Jordan are, are unhinged. And I just finally add that a judge ruled last week that Trump and his company uh, will be defendants in the separate probe into possible scams with the 2017 inaugural monies, which may have been used to line his pockets. Man, that as I said, that noose is tightening. It's, it's tightening, and it's going to continue to tighten. It's going to continue to tighten because he's a career criminal, and when you have all these investigators looking at you, they're going to determine exactly that what you are, and he knows it. The kids know it. Everybody knows it. They, they're just sitting there waiting for more shoes to drop, and they'll continue to drop, and he will be indicted and tried. It's yep. just that simple. Yep. Keep your eyes on the Manhattan yeah, DA. And, and by the way, the Supreme Court is not going to help him. They want him out of there as bad as anybody else. Mitch McConnell is not going to help you. Right. That There's is nobody going to come to this guy's defense. Right. That's a that's yeah. a Republican centered Supreme Court, and their their interests are in the Republicans of Mitch McConnell, of not of Donald Trump. You're right. And that Manhattan DA, they have got the toughest, most professional legal and accounting uh, experts around, uh, and uh, they're they're not going to they're not going to indict him on anything that's no. uh, questionable or frivolous. It's going to be a big deal. And remember, they have, in addition to all that, they have five million doc documents. Right, five right. million. Right, James. Another big story this week was Sarah Palin's libel suit against the New York Times for an editorial that had an error, which the Times promptly corrected. Now, the jury unanimously decided against her, and the judge would have thrown the case out for insufficient evidence. But I'll tell you why I worry that this is still a big deal. I, I think the verdict was obviously correct. There's a standard set by the Supreme Court in 1964 for a public figure to win a libel suit for defamation. And that means the defendant has to prove actual malice or a reckless disregard of the facts. And back then, Justice Brennan wrote that, that for the press, that, that just seminal decision, that at the core of the First Amendment is criticism of public figures. And while erroneous statements are inevitable, Brennan wrote, there must be protection if freedom of expression are to have any breathing space. That's what that 64 Sullivan decision uh, settled on. And my great worry is that what Palin's real motive here is to get this to the Supreme Court where you've already had two justices and there may be three or f two or three others who want to overturn that decision. Uh, that would be a disaster. Well, if anything, it proved how conscientious the time was, particularly James Bennett. I knew James uh, from my time in Israel. He was actually a Times reporter, was covering Israel. I had dinner with him a couple of times, obviously friendly with his brother, Senator Michael Bennett, who I endorsed for president. And the guy's just had a, a miserable couple of years, but I'm not sure for good reason. And if anything, it, it, actual malice, they were just devastated that they got the fact wrong and corrected it immediately. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't... Uh, who funded that lawsuit? I mean, because they wasted a lot of money on, on, on counsel, on filings, on trials, on witnesses, and God knows what not. And I mean, and it's very seldom you have this where the judge and the jury publicly come to the same conclusion. I mean, it was not even a close call. I, I hope somebody writes a book on what was the thinking behind this, but then when you have Sarah Palin thinking, maybe there was none. That, that's the, 
you know, I, I, think, I think it may be more nefarious. I think it's a bunch of right-wingers who want to get it, to the, as they say, to the Supreme Court. And if they do get to the Supreme Court and they overturn Sullivan, which I pray will not happen, that, but I will tell you who ought to be really worried if that's the case, even though they may cheer it on, and that's Fox News. If they change the standards for libel, Tucker Carlson, baby, you better move to Hungary permanently because uh, it'll, it'll really affect them. And the other point I make, uh, James, is they yell about fake news. Well, I, I talked to Bob Sack, who's probably the greatest libel lawyer uh, in America. He's on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals now, uh, retired judge. He was the Wall Street Journal's counsel for years. He said, that that's crazy. Any news story that is disseminated with the intent of fooling the recipient is actionable. Fake news, you can sue for libel, you know, anytime you want if it's really fake news. But um, it's just, it's become a crusade for the right wing and they may regret it. I would not put it past this court if five members overturned Times v. Sullivan gave a carve-out to Fox News. Yeah. I don't know how they could do it, but they, they would think of some way. Well, they'd have to... I guarantee you Alito and Thomas and Gorsuch would do that in a heartbeat. And they'd have to find a few other carve-outs, too, but they could probably, if they make one, they can find they're a couple coming, more. Yeah, they, they, you know, they, 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 they're working overtime trying to think of something. <laughs> okay. Hey, have you ever really thought about where toilet paper comes from? For the most part, it's coming from North American old-growth forest. And every day, we're cutting down thousands of trees to make something that we use one time before throwing or flushing it away. Fortunately, real paper uses fast-growing bamboo and their paper products instead of virgin tree fibers from our forest. And just like the grass on your lawn, bamboo regrows over and over so it can harvest it from the same plant over and over instead of from cutting down trees. Now, James, you got to like that. I, I love this. And you can feel that, you know, just given the amount of environmental damage that traditional paper products cause, I... I I, I, I guarantee you, they got people in the lab, and they're thinking about all kinds of things that they can come up with with this because yep. it's it's and it's a hell of a product. Let me tell you. And, and there's there's like uh, who was the the guy that used to tell he died tragically young. He he was really funny in uh, John Tanet uh, something like that. And he's a was a really funny. And he said, "There's one thing you you don't compromise on, and that's toilet paper. Price does not matter." Well, they actually have. A, a, a good price, and it's better than non-compromise, and it's a hell of a product that's going to do nothing but expand. It, it is. It's great quality. This guy's name was John Panette, P-I-N-E-T-T-E, -E, yeah. and he was funny. He'd, he'd do, he was an overweight guy, and he would do food and fat jokes that just make you, I'm sure it's politically incorrect, but you just laugh so hard, you... you roll out of your chair. Well, real paper is available in easy, hassle-free subscriptions or for one-time purchases on their website. All orders are conveniently delivered to your door in 100% recyclable, plastic-free packaging, even the tape on the box. Now, if you head to realpaper.com slash warroom, it's realpaper.com slash warroom, and sign up for a subscription using our code warroom at checkout, you'll automatically get 30% off your first order. That's realpaper.com slash warroom or enter the promo code warroom to get 30% off your first order. Real paper is toilet paper and paper towels that change lives. Hey, James, our guest is Bill Bradley, three-term United States senator, all-American basketball player at Princeton, Rhodes Scholar, part of an NBA championship team, successful investment banker, and now travel. And now he's done a one-man play about his extraordinary life. Boy, that's a mouthful, Bill. You've done a lot. So it's great to have you. Good to see you again. Uh, you've also been deeply interested and worried about Russia and Ukraine for a long time. About six years ago, you suggested an accord that Russia withdraw from eastern Ukraine. Ukraine agreed never to join NATO, and there'd be internationally supervised referendum in Crimea. In, in Crimea, would either side accept that? Would it fly with either side today? I think that uh, <clears throat> events have taken on a life of their own uh, as of today. But the basic principle of a negotiated settlement. I think is still valid. And if I were going to pick um, 
the ideal example, it would be the Austrian State Treaty of 1955, when at the height of the Cold War, the Soviet Union and the United States negotiated the pullout of Austria, with Austria becoming an independent country and a neutral country. Um, and I think that that would be very interesting as a possible option uh, if we can avoid the uh, catastrophe that potentially awaits us if there's an invasion. Well, we agree that it would be a catastrophe, and you have been very critical of American policy over recent decades on Russia, ever really since the end of the Soviet Union. But isn't Putin really acting like the worst of those brutal Soviet dictators? I mean, not just what he's threatening to do now, but internally with Navalny and everything. Is this, is this, can, can you have the same kind of optimism about dealing with Russia today with Putin that you might have had, say, 20 or 25 years ago? Uh, no, I think a lot of things have happened in the last 20 years, some of which have been precipitated by our actions and many of which have been precipitated by uh, Putin's actions. Uh, I think that we have to be very clear about who we're dealing with. And as long as the whole debate is about should he invade or will he invade or won't he invade, uh, we lose airtime to talk about the things that are important uh, to us. Um, not the least of which are letting the world remember that in 1994, Russia signed a treaty already recognizing the existing boundaries of Ukraine in exchange for removing nuclear weapons from Ukraine. They violated that. And then reminding people about the assassinations in England of uh, agents that uh, Putin didn't like and the whole Navalny thing. We have a lot of things that we could be talking about uh, that we're not talking about if the only thing we're talking about is will he invade or will he not invade? And the question is how you put this uh, this genie back in the bottle. And I do not <laughs> think that we can <laughs> put the genie back in the bottle by simply uh, waiting to see what he's going to do, but we ought to be proactive on a negotiating front. I was very interested to see what the president of Ukraine said two days ago when he suggested, well, maybe Ukraine would be neutral, would not be a member of NATO. Well, that's a negotiation. The Austrian State Treaty took 17 years to negotiate, but it came out all right, and there was not a war, and it was a neutral country. And it seems to me that that's what we want. I think in Ukraine, the thing that I'm concerned about is if uh, the president uh, is indeed interested in uh, uh, a neutral country, the question is, how do you negotiate that? And how do you avoid the far right in Ukraine from trying to depose the existing president? So it's a very complicated issue. But the question is, unless you're willing to put things on the table, then you're not going to get a solution to this. Bill, if that doesn't work, if they don't put things on the table, and there is an invasion of some order, how does it play out? Well, it doesn't play out good for Ukraine because the United States is not going to go to, uh, as the president has said directly, will not intervene militarily. The Europeans aren't going to intervene militarily. You're going to have some low-grade insurgency. That they, they may be supplying weapons. They may not. Um, it will be a disaster, It'll be a giant refugee crisis, people pouring over into Poland, Hungary. And uh, it, in my view, would be a humanitarian disaster. Uh, now, I don't think it's such a great idea for Russia, because I think in the end, Russia will not be able to swallow the country uh, in anywhere near its current form. James. So, so, Senator, let, let's assume a recently elected uh, Sherry Beasley, Val Demings, Connell Lamb, Tim Ryan, if they're likely to do it, they're getting ready to be young United States Census, and they come in and pay you a visit. 
and they say, Senator Bradley, you know, you were a young senator once. How should I look at the world that we face with now, which is obviously a, a lot different world than a, a young senator, younger Senator Bradley faced when he and the Senate. But what, what, what would you just tell them they should concentrate on or look out for just a general overview of your counsel to them would be? I would say that over the last 20 years, the forces of authoritarianism have increased in strength in the world. Um, from Xi Jinping to uh, Putin to Orban to Erdogan, and the forces of democracy must not retreat. But the question is, democracy should be something that is set as an example of how we think we should live our life. So we need to perfect our democracy here at home and not fight wars abroad to force democracy on countries that may or may not want it. So I, I think that we have to look at it with a little more humility, unlike the last 20 years where there's been far from humility. There's been a kind of messianic approach to uh, democracy and enforce it. I think that was a tremendous, tremendous mistake because it showed the world the limitations of U.S. power. Up until that point, <clears throat> people were very reluctant to challenge the United States because of our power, because we didn't have to use the power. It was a potential, like the Cold War. But once you used it, as you did in Iraq, as you did in Afghanistan, and you essentially fail, then you are no longer as strong in the world as you otherwise would be. So somebody in some part of the world, says, well, well that's great advice, Senator. The truth of the matter is the United States is deteriorating. I mean, you've lost the war in Iraq. You lost the war in Afghanistan. Don't make any mistake about it. Your democracy is as fragile as it's ever been in its entire history. Why would we want to emulate you? Why would anyone want to be like the U.S. or want to be like that? Is it is there some, something I'm missing? You know, I'm, I'm just saying I'm a guy from Croatia or, yeah, or yeah, yeah, Thailand yeah. or something. You know, I, I, I see the United States and I don't see a model for success right now. Yeah. Well, I, I think you make a good point, James, that our main job is not delivering democracy to Iraq or Afghanistan. Our job is delivering democracy to the American people. And there are plenty of things that we have to do in order to make that happen. And to the extent that we succeed in having a pluralistic, meaning a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy, meaning where people actually not only vote, but participate in the affairs of their community with a growing economy that takes more and more people to higher economic ground, we will be a powerful example. But we need to address our needs here at home. Well, I... You know, I mean, I'm we're all of the same generation here, and I just can't help but look back and I share this with my students. I'm, I'm not, I've always been sure we were going to make it. Uh, I, I think we're going to make it, but it's more problematic maybe now than any time that I can remember. Well, I think there are uh, some very negative forces loose in the society today. No question about that. And... That's where you have to step forward with a very clear set of goals with very specific agenda. And you have to have leaders who are going to actually put themselves on the line. It is true. You know? And if we don't, if we don't all step up, you know, democracy is a fragile thing. Barry, Albert. He's just picking up on that, Bill, a number of, you know, pretty thoughtful people, Mike, uh, Michael Beschloss, uh, Tony Blair, uh, and Sean Wilentz up at your alma mater, have said they're really worried about the future of democracy in America. Yeah, Do you well, share that concern? I, would, I wouldn't be listening too much to Tony Blair. <laughs> well, let me just do Michael Beschloss and Sean Wilentz. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Tony Blair doesn't have any right to comment about what's going on in America. He's one of the cheerleaders for Iraq. Uh, Good point. So I'll I stick with the first that, two. Uh, I think Sean Wilentz and Beschloss are astute, uh, uh, students of democracy. 
and of the United States. And I can see how they could be pessimistic at this stage. Um, and things aren't easy. But there are a whole, there's a whole new world about to be born. The question is, is it going to be headed in the direction of authoritarianism? Or is it going to be a reinvigoration of democracy? And uh, what we've always managed to have in this country is in the darkest days, there was someone or some several people who stepped forward and were able to lead in very difficult times. And, you know, you can talk about presidents, Lincoln, FDR. You can talk about, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and people who changed the, the world by their innovation. So I think that we don't know what the world is going to look like a couple of years from now. We do know that we're in a very difficult political environment where we have democracy endangered by virtue of suppression of the vote, by virtue of uh, social media that's way out of control in terms of exacerbating divisions in society, and in terms of an apparent paralysis uh, between the two parties. But, you know, it's like that until it's not. And right now it's like that, and it's unfortunate. But I'd, I'd focus on something pretty easy, the Electoral Act of 1887. You know, what happens on Election Day? How do you count the votes? And to me, that offers a possibility of bipartisan cooperation. And when that happens, who knows what will happen next? Bill, let me switch subjects to something different about you. Um, what was it like and what kind of reception are you getting for being um, last month, the star of Broadway and your one-man play about your life. Before that, you traveled around the country. Tell us what it was. Tell us what it was like and uh, what kind of reaction. Oh well, I'm having the time of my life. I love it. I mean, I say you know, I worked on it for four years in order to perform it for four nights. And thank God we filmed it. We had four cameras going each night, and we'll have a film by the. Uh, probably early summer, um, but it was a wonderful experience, you know. It gave me a chance to uh, have my say, uh, and I would travel around the country. I'd go to little theaters in Salt Lake City or San Diego or been to Chicago a couple of times and um, down in Texas, and I'd tell the local theater, you know, tell your subscriber list they want to hear me uh, read this, because I hadn't memorized it at that point, I haven't come. And so there'd be 50 people, 100 people. I'd do it and then say, what do you think? And they'd make their suggestions, and I'd take my notes, and then I'd make changes. And that's the way it evolved over a period of time. And then COVID hit, and actually COVID was a blessing because it forced me to go deeper into the material. And I think that it's a better show because of that. And then I, um, you know, I had a friend that said, so you think I got to memorize this? He said, you certainly do have to memorize it. So I walked around Central Park memorizing this, speaking, saying, thank God I had a mask on because people thought I was speaking to myself. And, uh, and the result was um, the uh, four performances at the end of November and early, uh, early December. What was harder, memorizing that? Or are uh, uh, trained to be a great basketball player? Very similar. Took the same kind of discipline. 25 shots in a row versus walking around the park saying, well, I got a third of it now, and I got a half of it now. I got three quarters of it. Probably over a 14-month uh, period, I probably did it every day except maybe seven or eight days. Yeah. Let me ask you one more, and then turn it back to James. You, I didn't fact, mention this. I could, I could begin right now. I could do the show for you right now, Al. <laughs> you want to start on the Tax Reform Act no. of 1980? No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, uh, no I didn't not, mention this, but you also. Starts. Here's the way it starts. <laughs> you begin by bouncing a ball in the yep. backyard, in the driveway, at the playground, and then you start shooting. Your knees are bent, your elbows on the ball, your eyes are on the rim. You shoot and you follow through. How simple the basic act is. 
I don't know when my interest turned to passion, but I was very young. So there you are. You have the opening. That's great. All right. I can't wait to see the film. Let me ask you a final question. I didn't mention this, but in addition to everything else, you were an Olympic champion. As you watch or see these Beijing Olympics mired in controversy and politics, your thoughts on this and the Olympics today? Well, you know, I've thought since 1976 that this idea of moving the Olympics around the world every four years is a recipe for disaster. And we ought to build, we ought to go to the country of the Olympics origin, Greece, build a permanent Olympic stadium, return there every four years, turn it not just into a celebration of the fastest and most agile and strongest of the world's youth, but have a, uh, a cultural festival, part of which would be uh, athletics. And then we'd get back to having the focus on the athletes and the performance and the excellence that we see when we see someone in top shape at the top of their game. Uh, that, in my view, would be much more than the politics that will always buffer the Olympics when they move from country to country. James. So, Senator, uh, our listenership is dying to know this as I'm dying to know it. And that is, what does Senator Bradley recommend, like two or three commentators, sites, books, or something like that? What, what, what should a person that tries to stay informed, what are some things that you look at that, uh, that we're all accessible to all of us? Well, definitely, number one, the Hunt Carville podcast. <laughs> I like that. Yay! That's, after I mean, they that's, see by, far, that's by far the best. That's the right. most important thing to see. Right. Um, but, I don't know. I read a lot of stuff. I read a lot of uh, economic stuff, financial stuff. Um, I try to read history. Um, so, I mean, I don't think there's any one thing you read. I think there are a lot of things that you read. So I got to end with a basketball question because Al and his son get into these debates and Al is a big historical fan of Oscar Robinson, as I think that you are. Could you just talk a little bit about Oscar Robinson and his game to people that, you know, basketball fans, but it's Man, all ancient history. You mean, want me to talk about the big O? to the one-tenth of one percent of people who right. don't even know who the hell he is, right? Exactly. <laughs> I, we do arcane stuff that no one else does. And well, I'll, I'll well, listen you know, to that. His greatest strength was that he never took a shot at 17 feet that he could get at 15 feet. He never took a shot at 15 feet that he could get at 10 feet. In other words, he was in control of his body and the ball and the relationship between each of those and his man in a way that uh, made him an extraordinary player. And uh, I think that, you know, if I was starting a team, I wouldn't start with Oscar. I'd start with Bill Russell because I think he was the biggest winner of all time. And then it would be close between Oscar and Michael. Wow. Well, wow. well, we get different. We get we get different questions here, and we get different answers here. So, I mean, I, I appreciate your insight, and I, I I can't tell you what a delight it is to see that you're doing so well. With you're looking so well, and you're still active. And man, keep on thinking and keep on punching because you know we're losing ground here. <laughs> I, I I would just add one thing, James. Bill, I remember when. We took you to a Georgetown basketball game probably about 30 years ago, and Dikembe Mutombo blocked about five shots and put him in the fifth row. And I said, isn't that amazing? You said, no, no, Bill Russell usually kept the ball in bounds when he blocked a shot. That's exactly right. He started a fast break. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and that's why uh, your first couple of years they beat the Knicks. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That was the last championship. We should have won that series. <laughs> There's a piece on athletic that you would really enjoy. Why the, the 61-62 basketball season was the best ever? Why the 61-62 60 NBA season was the best ever? You know, like a Wilt 100-point game. They went through all of the – it was interesting, okay? And you were, uh, you were probably just coming out of high school about that time. Yeah, he was a yeah, 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 yeah. No, I but, think the best team 
that ever that played was the 65, 66 Celtics because they had everybody then. And they had the Jones brothers, Charman, Heinsohn, Russell, Havlicek. They had them all. Yeah. And uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a remarkable team. They had a pretty fair country coach, too. They sure did. <laughs> Only problem is he smoked. You know what I mean? Just the final one, just because we've gotten into this. Do you ever do you ever talk to Russell? I uh, I certainly did talk a lot to Russell in the last several years, but not since he's deteriorated as much yeah. as he has. He's got yeah. a kind of dementia issue. Oh. And it's very it's very <laughs> sad. Um He's a wonderful human being. I sat with him, I don't know, I thought for a while I was going to do a book in which I was going to interview Russell and Oscar and West and the old guys about the game. And I spent two or three days with Russell. And then I decided I'm um, not, not going to do the book. But And Bill was very strong, very good supporter of mine when I ran for president. He was, he was in New Hampshire, he was in Iowa. And um, he became a very uh, a good friend, and I so, think he's a really extraordinary human being. So I, I'll leave you with a story. We had the 2013 NBA All Star Game. It might have been 12 or something, it was somewhere around that time frame. And they had a you know, party the night before the game, and everybody was there. And Bob Pettit and Bill Russell talked to each other, and no one would get within eight feet of them <laughs> because everybody was just fascinating, just watching this conversation. Yeah, you know, they were probably re uh, and, and uh, Pettit was probably replaying the '57 right. championship that the Hawks won, right. <laughs> and Russell was replaying the championship the year later that they beat him. Yeah, well, you're from Missouri, <laughs> so I'm sure you remember. You, know, you remember that, but it was really just extraordinary uh. just to watch how much respect people had for those two guys, and just everybody just cleared out of the way. Nobody tried to come yeah. in and make a point. You know, it was, it was a remarkable. Actually, Actually, Thank Bob Pettit's it. become a pretty good friend too since, uh, well, since 2000. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he he's a successful banker. He stayed in Louisiana and he did very well. Yeah, Bill Bradley, you've been a fabulous guest. Uh, I cannot thank you enough. We oh, cannot man. wait to see that uh, uh, document. Is it a documentary? I guess uh, when it comes out uh, in about uh, when in June. Uh, probably it'll be out in in June. Yeah, it's called Rolling Along. Well, we, we can't wait to see it. Uh, and best to your daughter and hope to talk soon. Thanks. Yes, Rolling sir. along, James. I got the, it. Rolling along. For the Mississippi. The Mississippi. Old Man River keeps on rolling. <laughs> Thank you so much, Santa. Hey, up your game when it comes to nutrition, finances, and your health with HelloFresh, where you get farm-fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. So skip the trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh has fit and wholesome recipes for satisfying and nutritious meals that you can feel good about with six recipes per week to choose from, including low-calorie and carb-conscious options. You can warm yourself up from the inside out with limited-time recipes inspired by cozy classics from around the world, like beef tenderloin and cheese fondue or miso sesame shrimp and bacon ramen. We love that you can easily customize your order on the app within minutes. Fresh, high-quality ingredients that go from the farm to your kitchen in less than a week. All delivered right to your door. Your whole family loves it, right, James Carville? Yeah, I've used this product on numerous occasions, and I just say this. It, it tastes good. I don't know how to do it, and you know exactly, you know, they got very good nutritional information. If you hope to like we are, and you, you kind of watch this stuff from time to time. It's right there, and I, I just thought you couldn't – I had this thought of thing in the back of my mind. It was all like TV dinners. It's anything no, but that. This stuff is really it, – it's really tasty, and you know exactly what you eat. It's a, it's a hell of a product. So go to HelloFresh.com slash War Room 16 
and use code WARROOM16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. For America's number one meal kit, remember, you go to HelloFresh.com slash WARROOM16 and use code WARROOM16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts, or look for the link in our show notes. Yeah, and you can say, hey, honey, I got dinner tonight. I got prep, cooking, and clean up all done. Bow. <laughs> all right, James, let's start off with our listeners today with Howard in Ottawa, Ontario. He knows that you've said on a few occasions that your political wet dream is a credentials fight at the Republican convention. It sounds like a dream that I would enjoy. Could you please explain what a credentials fight is and how it would come to be? So this, this has a, a you, you know probably more about this than I do, but there's kind of a long history of different delegations. Up to famously the Mississippi Freedom Delegation, I think it was at the 1964 Democratic Convention, so the credentials committee at a convention decides who they're going to seat. It, it's usually not that particularly controversial as they have a rule and the party has a rule and somebody wins a primary. But when they have them, they can be, uh, they can be quite entertaining. And I, I just can't imagine that if he did run that he would just accept the fate of the primary voters. I, I but the whole convention, as I appreciate, it, has to vote on which delegation you seat, and it, it's a, it's a rare, but can be a very intense event. And it would be a wet dream, Howard. So let's hope you and James uh, get your way. Ted in Taos, right. New Mexico, said he heard there's a plot to change the election result. The plan even had a name, the Green Bay Sweep. Peter Navarro proudly wrote about it in his book. Will we he hear more about the Green Bay Sweep? A couple of things, Ted. Uh, first of all, uh, that's what Navarro did call it, and he and Steve Bannon uh, concocted this crazy scheme. They were going to force Pence uh, not to accept the Electoral College votes that came in, and then they were going to have enough members of Congress to throw it all in chaos uh, and would eventually keep uh, Trump in office. Let me tell you how stupid Peter Navarro is. Not only does he know nothing about economics, not only does he know nothing about constitutional law, he doesn't know a damn thing about football. It's not the Green Bay sweep. It's the Packers sweep. David Mariners, who wrote the great book on Vince Lombardi, said nobody who knows anything about football would call it the Green Bay sweep. So that's just another thing you can add to the list, James, of things that Peter Navarro doesn't know. Yeah, in... in could you imagine running the, the Green Bay sweep against Aaron Donald? <laughs> he gets swept <laughs> off the field. I mean, that, that worked fine when you had, you know, 215 pound <laughs> linemen. I, I mean, it's 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 so manifestly stupid. But, but why would we be surprised? Yeah, I know. Hey, Ron in West Virginia notes that the the governor of his neighboring state of Kentucky is an interesting study. He's a Democrat in a really red state. He's never lost a statewide race. Could he be the next Bill Clinton, James Carville? Well, I know him very well. I knew his dad, who was also governor of, of Kentucky. And, uh, I, you know, I don't say the back, you know, that's like saying that to me, this is the next Babe Ruth. I mean, but but he's a very, very talented guy uh, who's had a, a remarkably successful career in politics. I think he was like attorney general before he was, he was governor. And what's remarkable about Andy is he's one of the few Democrats that ever gets elected to anything in Kentucky, which is, you know, a really, really uh, deep red state. But I mean, I think that's a tribute to his dad and a tribute to him that they have been so politically successful in that state. Yeah, sure is. Uh, I should say the Commonwealth. They're very peculiar about that. <laughs> uh, Rob in Rosemont, Pennsylvania. That's my stomping grounds, James. We know Rosemont, oh, the Philadelphia's okay. main line. He said, Republicans always make the most of Democratic blunders. Do you think the DNC and every Democratic campaign will be on the ball this year and dominate the airwaves with footage of rioters breaking into the Capitol with the voice of the RNC supporting in the background? Rob, a couple points. First of all, um, everybody ought to know about it. I've mentioned before on this show... If anyone out there has not seen the HBO show, Four Hours at the Capitol, please watch it. Show it to all of your friends. Uh, and, Rob, I certainly think Democrats shouldn't shy away from talking about that, but I don't think that should be the centerpiece of their election. The centerpiece of their election really ought to be what they can do for you. Do you want to move forward or go back to those bad old days? And that may, may be part of the, of the, of the latter, but I, I, I think any Democratic candidate who bases his campaign 
campaign primarily uh, on the awful things that happened January 6th, probably is making a mistake. Well, I, I would add to that. The hearings that the January 6th commission are going to have, I have two words, strap in. All right, let's see where this goes. I have a feeling it's going to go in some really compelling narrative and some really compelling facts yeah. that we're going to find. We're not sufficiently appraised of everything that happened on January 6th, and the facts are starting to develop, and we should allow them to continue to develop. And I think it'll, they'll, they'll develop in a way that will be gripping and horrifying to 56% of this country. Yeah, uh, I concur. Uh, Ann, uh, who is uh, from the suburbs or outside of uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, she wants to ask you, James, why don't Democrats talk about the wins? What are the leading projects from our Democratic presidents that have impacted our lives directly? Clinton, Obama, Biden. Well, well first of all, I, right now, I love Wisconsin. It, it probably has more hard-to-pronounce place names as any state in the country. Yeah. Those wild counties outside of Milwaukee, I still can't pronounce it. Well, she's actually, from what I think is Mekon, M-E-Q-U-O-N, but somebody will write and say, boy, Hunt, you screwed that one up. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I fumble a lot of names in Wisconsin. They, they, they have a lot, a lot of French names, they have Native American names, and, and they pay great, great tribute to, to their history. Uh, yeah, they... There just has to be more aggressiveness. And I actually do think that people are starting to understand that at some level. It's not anywhere close to where we want it to be. But I do have a sense that there's a real discussions going on as how to be more effective at getting this across. Yeah. And I can't tell you that right now, we're particularly good at it, but at least most people know we're not that good at it. And that's the first step to make things better. Well, to follow up on that, Don in Rush, New York, asked that the president signed the Infrastructure and Jobs Act months ago. What's the status now? Is any real work started? I hear you talk about Democrats appealing to voters. This is more than an opportunity. It's what the nation has been calling out for for decades. Uh, if work is being done, shout it out. It is beginning. Uh, the, these things don't happen you know, right away. Some things right. aren't shovel ready. But they got the best guy they could have, uh, Mitch Landrieu, in charge of it. He's going around the country talking about it. It's going to start. And I would just remind any of those members of Congress who brag about a project and you find out they voted against it, Please don't, please don't hesitate to remind them of their hypocrisy. Yeah, and it, it, it takes, you know, if you just one project, you know, build one bridge, you have to have environmental impact study, you have to have engineering, you got to, you know, it, it takes a lot to start pouring concrete. But again, we're starting. It, 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 and people know we're starting and we got to remind people of what's coming their way and there's a lot of good stuff coming in this. Now, you're not going to see it now. You're not going to see it, you know, next year, but you're going to see it in the foreseeable future. Okay, James, our final one. This, But you want to talk about one right down the middle of the plate for you. I mean, are you ready? I All mean, right. this is really uh, – this is from Andrew like in Jacksonville, Florida. And he wants to ask right. Mr. Carville. He calls you Mr. Carville. Shows a lot of respect there. With all his considerable knowledge and experience in Louisiana politics, for his advice on the best books in Louisiana politics, as well as his take on former Governor Edwin Edwards. I still think the best book – on Louisiana politics, but, but the Pulitzer Prize winning here long biography about T.R. Williams, you know, it's probably the seminal respected book. Uh, there, there's a, a book which is a collection of New Yorker essays by the great A.J. Liebling yeah. called The Earl of Louisiana. Yeah. And Earl Long is maybe, uh, Liebling called the best off the cuff humorist since Mark Twain, which is pretty high, pretty high praise. I, I just think you'll find that so entertaining and it actually. It gives you a good description of the state. It was a collection of, I think, six essays that Liebling wrote in a New York, and they put them together in book form. I, I, and you can read it on a from a Jacksonville to Dallas flight. It's that it's that readable and that accessible. Okay, James. We know you know Louisiana. 
but now I'm going to really, really test your knowledge. We know that this week, February 14th, was celebrated for being Valentine's Day, the Day of Lovers. What's the most important thing to celebrate for February the 16th? I don't know. Iwo Jima, wasn't that like uh, February of uh, James, no. James, you're disappointed. February 16th is the birthday is the birthday of Vanessa, who makes this show happen every week. Oh, she carries. So she carries. I mean, she carries Ann and Mike and you and me. Five guys who screw up every week, and the one person there who protects us is Vanessa, whose birthday is February sixteenth. Wow! Happy birthday, the Rock of Gibraltar. The, the way we keep going. <laughs> Whatever. The great Vanessa. Happy, happy birthday. Happy birthday, Vanessa. Not, not, not everybody has a 30th birthday, huh? <laughs> you know, can celebrate it, but have at it, gal. Hey, James, science tells us the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering core body temperature. You'd be amazed. Temperature-controlled sleep restores testosterone levels, repairs muscle after a hard day's work, and improves cognitive function. So you always start your day feeling sharp and alert. And sleeping cool is good for everyone, particularly us old guys, James. Yeah, look, the, the biggest determinative factor in the way that most people feel during the day is how they slept at night. This is scientifically proven stuff. Cooler temperatures make you sleep better, make you fall asleep faster, make you stay asleep longer. I mean, this is something that when you think about it, you say, why didn't someone think of this before? Well, they didn't, but they thought of it now. So as they say in the business, best time to plant an oak tree was 25 years ago. The second best time is right now. Yeah. And so you got something right now in your life that can help you do in most people's opinion, the thing that determines how they feel the next day is the way they slept the night before. Chili Sleep makes customized climate-controlled sleep solutions that help you improve your entire well-being. And with the Uller and Cube sleep systems, you'll be using a hydro-powered, temperature-controlled mattress topper that fits over your existing mattress to give you ideal sleep temperature. Whether you sleep hot or cold, these luxury mattresses pads keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep sleep. And they're designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you all the confidence and energy to power through your day. Now imagine waking up and not feeling tired. Chili Sleep can help make that happen. Then for an extra layer of comfort, they also make the Chili Blanket, the only weighted blanket that also can be paired with a control unit for the ultimate sweat-free sleep. So head over to chilisleep.com slash warroom to learn more and check out a special offer available exclusively for Politics War Room listeners and only for a limited time. That's chili, C-H-I-L-I, sleep.com slash warroom to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every day or look for the link in our show notes. Okay, now for what usually is our outrage of the week. Uh, instead, I want to pay tribute to a dear friend and a, uh, a dear friend and frequent guest on this program, Walter Dellinger, who passed away this week. Walter was as engaging a man as I have ever known, a constitutional scholar, but someone far more than that. He held all kinds of important posts, but he was witty, he was smart, he was insightful, and he and James Carville established this great relationship. The only thing they had in common is that they both have law degrees and they both were incredibly smart, and whatever differences they had, they papered over because they just were enamored with each other, as we all were with Walter Dellinger. He was on this show just, I think, several weeks ago, James, uh, and he will be missed. He was a great American citizen. He, he was a staggeringly insightful person. I mean, it wasn't just that he was the dean of the Duke Law School. He was the solicitor general. He was the head of the office of legal counsel. He, he, and he, his wife, who passed away for him, was from New Orleans. He just loved her to, to death. He took very good care of her. Walter's son has gone on to be the pride of his life as a highly senior person at the United States Department of Justice. 
And Walter had a deep commitment to civil rights, to, to women's rights. That, you know, he actually taught at Ole Miss Law School when he was a young lawyer, worked in the Delta. And I'm going to, in honor of Walter, in, in, what he did not do, he did not, he didn't like credentialed fools. He really had a, a, a sharp eye for that. And maybe the most credentialed fool in the United States is Jonathan Turley who you see on TV from GW. It's actually a tenured law professor, and is supposed to have some working knowledge of history. And in order to suck up to Fox viewers, he said, well, if Martin Luther King would have been in Ottawa, he would have been arrested. He's too goddamn stupid to know that he was arrested in Birmingham. Guy needs to go back to school. He needs Walter to, you know, somebody like Walter Dellinger to school him in the fine arts of American history. Well, we all will miss being schooled by Walter Dellinger. He left so many, there's such a legacy. There are so many people who were on Twitter today uh, saying, God, what he meant to me. He was my mentor. He was my Uh friend. uh, And he always did it with a great deal of charm. And uh, we will miss him on this show. Last time he was on this show, James, remember he said he was going to put in his bio that he was the dean of the Duke Law School, the U.S. Solicitor General, the head of the Office of Legal Counsel, uh, and the counsel to Politics War Room with James Carville and Alan. So we'll take it. And I want to tell you something. You will always be our counsel, Walter Dellinger. You are missed. Forever and ever. And not just here. In every quarter. Of, of this country, you you were a, a truly loved man and uh, and, a, know, and just, a great a great patriot. Yeah, he really was. Just a very 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 upsetting. But you know what 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 a privilege to have that guy for a friend. Jesus. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carvel and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Real Paper, HelloFresh, and Chili Sleep in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.